This morning, uh, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Lance. Uh, he is uh, the executive director of the Alabama State Board of Missions for 25 years. He served uh, as our state missionary, serving over 3,200 churches around our Baptist family and helping them uh, fulfill the great commission in our, in our state. But one of the favorite things about Dr. Lance is that he and his wife are church members. They're, they're members of our church faithful. And Pam, you last week were serving in sixth grade VBS just everywhere, serving faithfully. And Dr. Lance, you're preaching in a multitude of churches every single week, and I'm so delighted when you're able to be here, and you're always an encourager to me, a friend, and uh, this November, our church will have the joy of hosting the 200th annual, uh, uh, annual meeting of the Alabama Baptist Convention. It's our joy to host, it's our joy to participate and be involved, and so this morning, I'm delighted that uh, you're here to give us God's Word. So thank you. Would you help me welcome Dr. Yes. Lance? Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I know you know this, but we have a choice pastor, a choice servant of God, and one we could all place our trust and respect. One thing about it, God can take people and use the very best. He brings out the best in individuals, and he's certainly done that with our pastor, and he's been tested a good bit. I'm glad you're a part of the holy remnant today because I know a number of people are traveling and already at their destinations of holiday and vacation. Others are on missions trip, but I'm just glad we're able to gather today to be able to celebrate the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. I want to begin by not only gratitude to the pastor, but also to you. You're a stellar example in generosity and sacrificial giving through the cooperative program, which is our missional mutual fund that helps support missions, not only in Alabama, but around the world. If you think about it, we're, you can be anywhere, everywhere, 24-7, 365 days out of the year when we're giving through the cooperative program. You are one of the best of the best, and I want to express gratitude for that. Now, this morning, I want to ask you a question, and it's not a trick question. I know it's, uh, you don't want to come on Sunday morning and have someone turn the worship center, the worship service into a seminary class, and I'm not going to do that. But I would like for us to think this morning about the Lord's Supper table that we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And it is a common picture for us. Now, different churches have it in different ways, but everyone I've been to throughout all my ministry, every single one of them had the words that you see prominently right there. Uh, can we say this together? This do in remembrance of me. Now, here comes the question. The question is, what do you think's on the backside of the Lord's Supper table? Have you ever thought about that? Well, the answer is nothing. But I would like for you to engrave in your minds these words. On the front, this do in remembrance of me, and on the back, until he comes because that's what it's all about. We are doing what we do in anticipation of His coming. So I'd like to invite your attention to the prominent book we call Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, but we're going to look at our text, text is verses 4 through 11, and we'll segment those passages as we seek to reach critical points in asking this question, what do we do until Jesus comes? Remember now, Luke is a physician, something of a historian, and he's able to write not only the book of Luke, we call the Gospel of Luke, but also 
Acts. Had we not had Acts, think about it, if we'd ended with the Gospels, we would open up with the book of Romans without Acts, and we'd be wondering where Simon Peter is, and now we're talking about this guy named the Apostle Paul, who became prominent and really was positioned to be the early church leader in the book of Acts. But in verse 4 of this chapter, Jesus is now, after he's resurrected from the grave, after he's been among his disciples with those many appearances, it is time for a transition that the disciples has not, they've not been able to metabolize in their lives. And we wouldn't have either. We would be stupefied and mystified, not only by the words of Jesus in the day of his ministry, but what is in terms of what is about to happen. In verse 4, we are able to answer one part of that question. What do we do until Jesus comes? We first wait for his promise. Now, for the disciples, we'll read this. The disciples are waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is revealed in Acts chapter 2, the full revelation of God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit was active, of course, in the days of the Old Testament people, the characters there, but oftentimes limited to a person for a specific task. But now, in Acts chapter 2, every single believer has the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. Our waiting for the promise is the second coming of Christ that we'll see a little bit later. As we read, listen to these words. And being assembled together, Jesus is... I'm reading out of the New King James now. If you are reading a modern translation... Uh, bear with me. I learned, grew up learning the King James back in the 19th century, so you have to just bear with me. And being Jesus, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. The Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's their promise. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked, saying, Lord, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? What a loaded question. And he said, chidingly, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which is the Father set in his own authority. Let's focus on that word, those words, waiting for the promise. That's what we're doing as the next thing on the calendar, the calendar for Christians, is the second coming of Christ. We do not need to get bogged down as to when that's going to happen and how it's going to happen. We just know He keeps His promises. He's the ultimate promise keeper. He, therefore, we can stand upon His promises. He is coming again. And as we look at these disciples, now they're perplexed and they're concerned about what's happening next because they've really not been able to understand Jesus and they will not until you get further into Acts and they have a retrospective view of Jesus. Do you find it hard to wait? I must tell you one of my vices, and I have many, is waiting. Therefore, when Walmart opened up in Middleine, I was there the first day like, like an idiot. I was there the first day. And I decided to get my items. I didn't see a crowd. This was before self-checkout. 
And I was just going through. And then I got up to the front, and every aisle, it was just packed with people. You know what I did? I went back and put every single item up, which would have taken me more time than it would to stand in line, but I was not going to stand in line. I do not like waiting. No, no restaurant has that good of food to wait that long. And to you who are doctors in the medical community, please don't take this wrong, but I wish we could rename the waiting room. <laughs> Let's call it the get well room or something. Because what happens is oftentimes things get out of kilter and the waiting room turns into a real waiting room. Now, when we think about waiting, we're not talking about just idleness. No, no. We're talking about a holy anticipation. Something we know God has promised, and therefore we know will transpire. It will take place. Until He comes, we wait for His promise obediently, working to do His will, which leads me to the second point. Familiar of all the verses we have in the book of Acts and among the most familiar in the Bible. Jesus says, now after He's chided them for what He said that you don't have any business thinking about the times of the seasons or when all this is going to happen. That's up to the Father. It's in His authority. But you, what He's transitioning from a chide, chiding to a challenging moment. But you shall re receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Let's just stop there. We wait for His promise and we witness with His power. The word witness is commonly used in the New Testament, and it's more commonly used among us today. But we usually think of it in a courtroom. Or some news stations have used as a moniker, this is eyewitness news, which means they have people on the ground witnessing what's going to happen. There may be weather reports, and they're out there. I've never understood why anyone would stand in the middle of a storm and hang on to a rail, but they are there as eyewitnesses. That's what we're talking about. But it, in the New Testament, that word is literally transliterated martyr. Now think about it for a moment. We don't have to think about, in this country at least, not now at least, martyrdom. But there's a trail of blood all through Christian history where believers in Christ who have witnessed in His name and it's going on around the world today where they have become martyrs for the faith. We have named our state missions offering after Martha Myers, who on December 26, 2002, became a martyr for a faith in Yemen. It was there, a man disgruntled because his wife had been a patient of Martha Myers, came in and killed three of those working at that Jebla hospital. Martha was one of them. And he would have killed a fourth, but he was stuck in traffic. The truth is, the story of their lives is that they weren't, their lives weren't taken, they were given. And witnesses for Christ who become martyrs know that their lives are not taken, they are voluntarily and freely given on behalf of Jesus Christ. Today, persecution does not run rampant. Yes, we do have encroachment upon religious liberty. We, we see some seeds and perhaps some blossoming growth of antagonism against the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, 
even in the chaos in which we live and the critical time in which we find ourselves as the people of God, we are to be faithful as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's given us, given us his power. Now, if I had a glove up here this morning and we're dangling at a hand glove, just dangling it before you, and I said, this glove has all the power that you would want. You would think, how ridiculous. How ridiculous such a statement. But if I put my hand in that glove, it would have all the power of my hand. When we are alone without Christ, without his power, we're like a limp glove. But when we have the hand of his power and presence in our lives, we become far greater than our own ability. We're able to do greater things than we could ever imagine because we're empowered by the Spirit of God. What do we do? We wait for his promise. What do we do? We witness with his power. What do we do? Last part of verse 8, we work his plan. Now, what is his plan? He has already established a long-range planning committee for us. The last part of verse 8 gives it to us. Remember, these disciples have never much been beyond home. And listen, try to understand it from their perspective in these moments. We have gotten used to this terminology, and therefore it just doesn't ring as true and, and real in our lives. But Jesus said to them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem where they killed me. You will be my witnesses in Judea. You will be my witnesses in Samaria, the land of the so-called half-breeds who were a part of intermarrying during captivity. You, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Well, all they knew is the Roman Empire at that time. And they're probably sitting, standing there, thinking among themselves. Now, we, looking around at each other, real simple men, we are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We, here, are going to do that. Well, yes, they were the beginning of it. In Acts 1, you hear that message, to the ends of the earth. And by Acts 28... The gospel has reached ungodly and secular Rome in an unhindered fashion. By the time we get to Acts chapter 28, the gospel has permeated all of the Roman Empire. That message continues because we live in Acts 28 beyond. We have a world, literally billions of people, well plus eight billion. And in this nation of ours, of some 335 million or so, clearly as many as two-thirds of them do not even know what it means to have a born-again experience with Jesus Christ. Therefore, our mission is His plan. We are to work His plan, not try to create a new one, but everything we do in terms of methodology ought to flow from the fact we are to be witnesses where we are in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, and also reaching the people we may not particularly think we like 
and overcoming all those barriers, and then pushing the darkness back around the world. That's what it means to work His plan. Now look at verse 9. Here's where I think it gets really interesting. In all my ministry, I've been captivated by this experience we're about to hear. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, those disciples watched, he was taken up, taken up out of a cloud and received out of their sight. Now, picture that for a moment. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This very same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as he has gone to heaven. There's your promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, we wait for his promise, we witness with his power, we work his plan, but we also worship his presence. This morning, we have experienced worship. We are seeking to worship the presence of Jesus Christ. The ascension, to me, underscores a couple of factors that we need to have in our lives. It underscores the intimacy we have with Christ. He's ascending to the right hand of the throne of God, and it is there, even there, through the power of His Holy Spirit, who points to Jesus, that we have a sense of ongoing intimacy. We're never beyond a relational intimacy with Christ. But it also underscores His advocacy. He is there advocating for us, like an attorney advocating our case, if you will. He knows everything. He watches everything. He is all knowledge, so he knows what's going on. Even the minute details of our lives, there's nothing that escapes his attention. Therefore, he is advocating for us. But then built into this, with this promise that he's going to return, there's a sense of expectancy. Now, let me tell you, through the years, I've lived long enough as you can tell, to have gone through all kinds of stages where people have been, I think, well, intention, trying to predict when Jesus would come again. Now, let me just go back in history with you. Not too distant for some of us. In 1988, a man wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. Well, the next year, he had a sequel, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. Now, I'm not making fun of anyone in terms of their prophecy and their sense of eschatology. I'm just here to say it's not up to us. It's up to him. What's up to us is to be obedient, to wait for that promise working as we wait, working his plan, witnessing with his power, and worshiping his presence. This last week, I saw an interview with actor Jim Caviezel, and he was telling a story as to how his life was transformed by the presence of God. It happened in the most unique of places. He was sitting in a movie theater, and he said he just felt, he said, I can't even remember what I was watching, but I just felt the presence of God come over me. And I felt the call of God 
to make a difference in the movie industry. Hence, the Count of Monte Cristo. Hence, the Passion of the Christ. And next Tuesday, on July 4, The Sound of Freedom. It was transformative for him. You don't have that kind of transformation, most likely, but God uniquely is seeking to transform your life by His presence. And therefore, until He comes, we worship Him in the midst of the chaos of our society. We worship Him despite the misery we may feel. We worship Him despite all the adversity we may be experiencing. We worship Him because He is worthy of our worship. As we think about independence and freedom, being a little bit of American history buff, I have to tell you that I reread a biography of Douglas MacArthur. Now, if you don't know who Douglas MacArthur is, that's fine. For many of you, it's antiquity. But without, even as enigmatic and eccentric as he may have been, without people like him, we might not be where we are in terms of our human freedom as a country. He was a, if you will, provincial governor of Philippines. He loved the people of the Philippines. And, of course, he was there in the outbreak of World War II. The idea was that the naval fleet at Pearl Harbor was to bring them support if they ever were attacked. So they're close to Japan as they are, but, well, we know the rest of the story there. There was no backup. And so they were left with Americans and Filipinos fighting against the onslaught of this war machine that Japan and the Pacific and, of course, Germany on the other side of the world in Italy. They were fighting against this war machine and being ground to death. And it was in Corregidor, at Baton, it was in Corregidor that the president ordered him to leave and go to Australia to create a line of defense where the Japanese would go no farther. He reluctantly left his men, and therefore, as he was leaving, the very famous words, I shall return. That he said in March of 1942. This is a picture in October 1944. He's coming on shore at Leyte, a part of Philippines. And that, of course, was probably a staged picture. You would have to imagine that, protecting the general. But then he got on the radio and sent a broadcast all across the Philippines. I have returned, meaning I've kept my promise. Now, if a human general, as great as he may be, and resourceful as he might have been, if he can keep that promise, our Lord of Lords, our King of Kings, our Almighty God will keep his promise even more, infinitely, inexhaustibly more. 
And if we believe that, if we believe we are waiting for the promise of that happening, if we believe we are witnessing currently with His power, if we believe that we're working His plan, if we believe we're worshiping His presence, then that holy anticipation and expectation will one day come to reality. may not happen in our lifetimes, but we should live like it might. And in one day, He will return. Would you stand with me and bow your heads in a moment of prayer? Our Father and our God, we know you keep your promises. We know also, Lord, that you save. You are the only one that can save people from their sin. You are the only one who can give us a sense of liberty. You are the only one who can give us true freedom. We can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. So today, Father, under the sound of my voice and beyond, I pray if there are those who have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that this might be a time that they would acknowledge their sin, believe in you, confessing and committing their, confessing their sins and committing their life to you. For others, Father, this can be a time of recommitment where we come to a place we realize that we've lived the Christian life a long time and without knowing it, we have grown somewhat stagnant. But may we be re-energized by the fact you keep your promises. You will return. Our work is not in vain. Our love for you never goes unnoticed. And our, your love for us should never be taken for granted. So this day, our Father, as we think about human freedom, may we think about holy and eternal freedom found only in you. And may this be a day of decision-making, a day of transformation, a time of real turning point in the lives of people. May it be to your glory and to your honor as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.